Good afternoon, NBC Radio. My name is Corey Rosen, and you're listening to The Story Podcast. Today, I have on a super awesome guest. But before we get into that, if you really want to support what I do and my work, you can go over to the shop. We have merchandise for sale. We have stickers, and we have shirts and hoodies with the first 50 guests on the back. Today, I have on Mr. Greg Flurry. Greg has been playing the cello for over 15 years. It is his passion, and it is one of the largest defining factors of who he is. Greg has participated in the Allegretto Youth Chamber Ensemble, County and District Orchestras, and many other various ensembles before moving on to study cello performance at the Sunderman Conservatory of Music at Gettysburg College. Since graduating in May of 2016, Greg has participated regularly in college and community orchestras around the Central PA area, including York College Orchestra, Elizabethtown College-slash-Community Orchestra, Millersville University Orchestra, Hershey Symphony Orchestra, Gettysburg Meta Chamber Ensemble, and Allegro Symphony Orchestra. You can find Greg in his projects on his website, gregoryflurry.com, or on Facebook and LinkedIn, and all those those links are in the description below. Greg, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, so tell me, what was it as a kid that got you inspired to do cello? Yeah, that's a great question. So I first started in music at the age of four on the piano. Mm. So I, I started taking lessons at Elizabethtown College. And uh, I switched to the euphonium, which is like the baritone. It's a small tuba-looking instrument. Yeah, concert yeah. tuba, right? Yeah, something like that. Technically. Uh, and I played that through middle school. And then during that time, I wanted to explore the world of strings. Mm. So I thought to myself, I just want to try the cello out. So I reached out to one of the uh, music directors at my middle school, and she got me started. I started taking uh, private lessons over the summer, and then I dropped the uh, euphonium uh, pretty quick and just went with cello. So, What was the process of learning cello as a, as a kid, a big instrument for a small... Yeah, so luckily, they have different sizes of instruments. So I started with a half-size instrument, but uh, I grew pretty quick. So I went from half-size straight to full-size instrument. So that was pretty seamless. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Uh, So at what point did you figure that that's what you wanted to do forever? Or play forever, rather? Yeah, that's a great question. So when I was a sophomore in... High school, I went to go see uh, Zul Bailey, who's one of my favorite cellists, and uh, we were at the Whitaker Center, mm-hmm. and it was just awe-inspiring. And I told myself, this is what I need to pursue because it's just like I was felt on fire inside. And uh, I had a similar experience my sophomore year in college when I got the opportunity to play at Carnegie Hall with the Hershey Symphony Orchestra. That's cool. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, so we, it was in the big Isaac Stern Auditorium. So I was sitting there on stage before we were playing, and I was just like transported to another place. I was like, this is what I need to do with my life. And you know, I've continued to try to do so ever since. So how did you figure out how to do it successfully for, for life? Because people can play an instrument, but... In order to live, 
Yeah, so this is where the practicality of the situation comes into play because, unfortunately, making a name for yourself, making a career out of music and the arts is quite difficult, mm -hmm. especially if you don't have connections or you know are independently wealthy, <laughs> um, especially in the in the classical vein because you are going up against some extreme competition. Uh, nationally, regionally, globally, uh, and uh, you really have to kind of distinguish yourself and put yourself out there. Most careers, you know, you go to college, maybe get some, um, you know, graduate degrees, you know, master's degree, doctorate, whatever it might require, and then you go uh, on and, you know, you put your applications in or, you know, you try to apply for a job and then you just work there, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. With music, it doesn't work like that. Um, so to speak, unless you're in an administrative role. So it's you almost have to think like you're your own business owner mm. because you are your own brand, you are your own business, and how you make money is up, up to you, largely. So uh, one of the ways that you can do it is, you know, if you have the, the connections, is you can be a soloist performer where you get the fees that will... Uh, you know, pay for your way to go to the next concert and you can kind of make a big name for yourself that way and work the major circuits. Um, another way is through teaching. Mm. Okay, and that's the, the course that I took. Um, so then you have to consider uh, where do I go to teach? How do I get my name out there to build a studio, right? Because you want to build a studio that's big enough and stable enough that you can... Uh, consider how much income you can have and kind of build your life around that. So uh, I reached out to a bunch of local schools in the area, like private music schools uh, in the area, and gave them my name and, you know, told them I want to start teaching with them. Um, and through that, I've been able to gather enough students to, you know, start building a studio for myself. That's awesome. Uh, did you have to pick a teaching philosophy or come up with a teaching philosophy at all? Yeah, so that is a very much kind of hands-on learning process, mm. and at least in my experience, because when you're teaching for the first time, you don't find yourself in, an ex in, in a situation where you don't have to explain to somebody else how to do the thing that you've been doing. Without thinking about it. Without so thinking long. about it. And also, you have to take into consideration every student is different. So mm -hmm. you have to know how to interpret different concepts. So I would probably say teaching is one of the best learning experiences that you'll ever have because you really have to know what you're talking about. You really have to know what you're talking about. And indeed. And, and when, it, when it comes to playing a string instrument, there's a lot that can kind of set you up for failure. Yeah, failure and, you know, injury. Right, you know? yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you want to make sure that you avoid that. So you'll always have to be, you know, on top of monitoring. And it's it's not like you can go in and teach a class and hope the kid does their homework, right? Cause, of course, right. You know, you have to set up expectations that this is going to require hard work. It's going to require discipline, but the results are going to be extremely rewarding. And you have to dedicate to it. So, Especially it's something where you have to have correct posture, correct and po not only posture with sitting, but posture with hand movement as well. Because it can very quickly get very painful, and you can injure yourself very quickly. 
Uh, yes, very much so. And um, you also have to learn critical thinking skills. You have to listen to your own playing. You have to understand what you're doing to make that sound. And, you know, at the basis of it all, you want to make sure that you like your own sound. That's the basis of being able to play an instrument, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, aside from, you know, the money and the abilities to play the different things, you just have to like your own sound. You have to like the music that you're playing. Um, so that's, you know, that's ultimately where you want to get the students. So you always have to make sure they ask themselves, do I like my sound? Does it feel good to play this way? And often with my students, I will say, after they've played something, my first response will be, so what did you think? What were your thoughts on that? Well, that's good. To get them thinking. Because I, I've been in you know lesson situations where they just kind of talk, and then I play, and then I just kind of sit there. I'm not really engaged other than being able to play. They don't really want to hear. They never really wanted to hear my thoughts. This is more of their opinion on what you did. Yeah. yeah so it's I'm, not a good way to teach, I don't think. No, not not in my opinion. So I I try to make sure that they're engaged and talking themselves through their own process. Like we'll discuss concepts and stuff like that. So if I need to introduce something, then I might talk for a while. But you know, I always try to get them engaged and talking. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's extremely important, especially when you do it on your own. When you practice on your own, that way you can. Uh, with that practice in the studio of, of asking, so what did you think about that? Automatically, when they're on their own, they're going to be thinking, well, how, well, how did I feel about that? And then uh, talk, talk, you know, whether it be inner monologue or, or to themselves, talk talk their way through, okay, I did this and I did that wrong. I, I need maybe a bit more vibrato here or pay attention to this dynamic marking here or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've, I tell them to, you know, just ask themselves out loud, what, you know, what about this did I like? Uh, and one of the things that I always ask at the very beginning of the lesson is how was practicing this week? What kind of triumphs did you have? Mm. And what kind of things did do you feel need improvement? So I, I try to, you know, acknowledge that good things have happened because I know it's too <laughs> often for musicians to beat, beat up on themselves and, uh, that's not healthy. So I always try to put a positive spin, you know, like, what did you feel good about this week? Are there some things that didn't go as well as they could have? So you can, you know, that might need improvement rather than what didn't go well. What what did you fail at this time? Right, of course, right. What well, needs work? All right, let's do it. Yeah, exactly. So, what do you think is some of the hardest concepts to teach on a cello? Ah, that's a good question. So, the. I would definitely, so I divide up the concepts between the different hands because they're doing very different things. Um, interestingly enough, a lot of the things that we do on the cello with the like large motions uh, we do in everyday life. You know, when we're talking to somebody at a coffee shop mm. or, you know, just like us right now, am I moving right. my hands, the kind of motions that I'm doing right now, you'll find also on people who are playing the cello, not necessarily like different fingerings, because that would just be weird. <laughs> but uh, um, I would say the, the, the right hand is probably one of the more challenging because you have to, because that's the one that, can, that kind of controls the sound, right? Because mm -hmm. without, the, without the bow and without the plucking, your, your left hand might be able to do some things. But with the, with the right hand, you have to balance between weight and control 
and you're also holding a stick with air on it, which you might not ordinarily way. do. Exactly. So it's you know getting somebody used to relaxing and trusting their own body. That's one of the hardest things because it doesn't come overnight, and as much as you think about it, your body might not follow suit. Yeah, and it's it's the matter of staying loose and not gripping it, having a death grip on it, and yeah. keeping it loose but also yeah. controlled. Exactly. And that yeah. was one of my hardest things in any instrument, whether it be keys, uh, drums. I've picked up the cello recently. Oh, uh, nice. I'm sorry, yeah, I, as a composer, I want to learn all the instruments oh, to yeah. a, a basic degree, not trying sure. to be the best at all. But I have a cello, and I'm trying to figure out how to play it. Um, and that's, that's, that's the hard part is, for me, is holding the stick or the, the bow if we're going to be uh, academic here <laughs> <laughs> and uh, being able to control it, uh, not being able to do like full arm motions, but correct me if I'm wrong, but it's more of just like a hinge that it's supposed to kind of act like, or is that violin? I can't remember. I describe it as a ratio of motion because mm-hmm. you want to engage the entire arm. The motion actually starts for me in the back. So the bigger the muscle group, the more they can contribute, the less you have to really worry about, you know, Using pressure, because there's gotcha. a big difference between pressure and weight. Gotcha. You feel the difference if you if you just try to like hold your arm up and just feel how heavy your arm is, just as dead weight. Okay. It's it's much heavier than you might expect because we're always used to just moving it around, holding right. it up ourselves, right? So using that weight to, you know, hold the bow down rather than, you know, gripping and trying to push back and forth. That's something that we kind of have to reverse engineer. Okay. And um, the ratio part comes with um, movement in the arm. So you have the upper arm, and then you have the lower arm. And for me, the way I describe it is you kind of divide the bow length into different segments. So if I'm going to bow across, I might use more upper arm and less lower arm. And then for the maybe the second half of the bow, I'll use more lower arm than I would upper arm. Gotcha. So it, it kind of right. you know, smooths out that way. And it's also trying to keep a straight line as well. And not trying to Yeah, that's why you need the relaxed wrist, <laughs> which is why it's important to use those bigger muscle groups that are up here and in your back. Gotcha. So I've been doing it all wrong. That's what you get when you get self taught. <laughs> Professionals are only ones that have been doing it wrong enough to long enough right, yeah. that they can finally do it right. <laughs> so how do you? Obviously, there isn't one way to cha- There isn't one way to play a cello. Oh, of course not. So, yeah. what is has been your favorite way that, besides classical? Have you tried more modern styles? Have you tried uh, like jazz or any of that kind of stuff? Yeah. So, um, in college, I actually took a jazz arranging and ear training seminar as my like senior seminar class, and. It was me, and then the other 98% of the class was the jazz band. So I was very out of place. Um, but I got to be the uh, the walking bass yeah, for most yeah, of our yeah. arrangements. So that was, that was very fun. Um, I also play string quartet arrangements of a lot of modern songs. So I play for a lot of weddings. Mm. Um, because I play with a group called uh, Vivace Live. Yeah, Vivace Live. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I, I play with them sometimes, and we do a lot of arrangements of uh, contemporary songs uh, that are arranged for 
string quartet. Mm -hmm. So that's been an interesting uh, experience as well. Just from a comp compositional standpoint, it's uh, focusing more, for me, I, from my observations, it just focuses more on uh, different textures and such because it's really accompanying words that would have been there if there would have been a singer. Right. But uh, it, it kind of takes the same structure and kind of repeats it more have and more. You, have you ever seen uh, Mike Block? No, I haven't. No, yeah. Do you know, but do you know who I'm talking about? Nope. No, oh no! You gotta look up him. He's the guy who created the cello strap. Uh, oh, so you can like stand up. So and, you can, like stand up. And oh play. no yeah, way! Yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah, know yeah. that was a thing. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if you if you want to check out some really wacky, really cool things, check out Mike Block. Uh, he came to our school uh, a few years back, um, and uh, the stuff he was doing was incredible because he was playing with an Indian musician, Sandeep Das, who was playing tablas. Uh -huh. So he was doing slides and. And uh, the, on a guitar, you, you know, you can like do two hands to play the string. Oh yeah, yep. He was doing that on a cello, and, I, and that blew my mind. <laughs> That's incredible. Right, right, right. Uh, and doing like, uh, not in harmonic. Can you do in harmonics on a cello? You can do uh, art. So you can have there's naturally occurring harmonics, and then there's uh, artificial harmonics. Yeah, that's what he was doing. He was doing he was doing that stuff, and I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> so, so just the way that the um, uh, the uh, the term is escaping me at the moment. I'm gonna remember as soon as we're done. That's always how it goes. It's always how it goes. Um, but as you go up the string, the way that it's divided will actually produce certain pitches on their own without actually having to press down on the string. That's a naturally occurring harmonic. So, if you place your finger in the middle of the string on the cello. That's dividing the string in half. You'll play mm -hmm. an octave above the string, and then a fifth, and then another, uh, and then another uh, octave, and then a third, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I'd imagine it's the same way the guitar works with with those. Yeah, yeah. and then um, artificial harmonics are an interesting invention where you can you if you place your thumb on the string and you place your uh, second or third or fourth finger, however, whatever's comfortable for you and you can actually it, as long as it's like a perfect fourth above that'll that'll produce an artificial harmonic so you can actually play like a scale or like different melodies with um, with harmonics that way that sounds it's that sounds like a, a music nerd dream yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well anybody who's played Shostakovich the second movement the very end of that movement has almost the last page is like entirely harmonics where you have to do that kind of effect it's incredible what you can do with certain instruments. It it is. I didn't know for and this is a little sidetrack, but flute they can play five notes at the same time. I did not know that. Right. That's incredible. That's incredible because yeah. the way they did it was you first off you hum the first note and that creates something, and then there's harmonic on on a flute that you can uh, create by like overblowing or and like stuff like you can create a chord with with a flute and it just blew. Wow. My mind. Uh, one of the one of the students here, a good friend of mine, Jordan Knoll, she did it. And it was it was a train piece, uh, so okay. it was yeah. So it kind of makes sense, right? Uh, that it was it's very dissonant, but so was a train. But uh, so, so she would have two melody lines going on. She would hum her melody line and play the flute melody line at the same oh exact time, right? The amount of concentration that must take. It's incredible. I know it's so wild. Um. 
all that to say, people can do incredible things with, with instruments. Have you ever tried out the uh, the double bass? I have not. I have not tried out the double bass. Is this something you might be interested in, or is this something you're just going to leave it to other people? I might just leave it to other people. Fair <laughs> enough. I do. I I uh, self-taught myself violin and, and viola. Mm. That's that's just more for like a practical kind of circling back to the teaching to right. help build my studio a little bit quicker. You know, opening up to those other instruments, more mainstream but, instruments. Yeah, because there's lots of people that want to play the violin and the viola, and really, the, even the viola. Well, not so much the viola. I was, I was say, <laughs> the viola is the butt of many jokes, isn't it? Oh yes, it is the New Jersey of the states. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, um, so mostly just violin, um, and then some cello, hardly any viola, mm. but uh, yes. So how does one begin to build their own studio? What are some of the things that people might need, some of the things that people are going to have to think about? From like from, from a teaching standpoint or like a student uh, standpoint? From a student standpoint, from getting people into your studio. You can make a studio, but how do you get people in there? Yeah, that's a good question. So, uh, as I said, I reached out to the so it's it's uh, I reached out to those different schools. So they kind of already have the marketing set up. So it's again thinking as a business owner, how do you get your name out there? How do people notice you? Why do they need your services as opposed to somebody else's? Right. So that's where you really have to distinguish yourself. You know, as someone who has a teaching philosophy has experience, knows what they're doing, and is, um, you know, very good at what they do. You know, a lot of teaching comes uh, with parents, you know, signing their kids up because a lot of parents, you know, they want their kids to be able to play an instrument or at least be exposed to an instrument earlier on. So that's going to be some of the experiences you'll have. And then some of the other experiences you'll have are, you know, people that are genuinely interested on their own to learn how to play the instrument. So you need to learn how to kind of balance between the different motivation levels, mm -hmm. the different learning styles, the different musical goals, and your own personal style. So it's a lot of juggling in that regard. Probably a lot of adapting. Oh, yeah. You have to, you have to be very flexible with the with the, the material material that you've been given. Have you ever taught adult students at all? Oh, yeah. my The range I've had is from 5 to 65. So, Wow. Yeah. What's the biggest difference, do you think, between teaching a person who's in their mid, you know, at least an adult and then a child, fresh, fresh child? Um, well, there's a couple things that kind of set them apart. Uh, the time that they can contribute towards of this. Um, one of the biggest things is probably motivation. Because, mm. you know, if you have an, uh, like older folks and adults that uh, are taking lessons themselves, that's because they're genuinely interested. They're curious to see what happens. They're curious to learn. So you're going to get a little bit more. They're literally paying for it. Yeah, right, yeah. Right. So when it's their own money on the line, then, you know, they're going to be more engaged. They're going to be asking more questions. They're going to have more life experience. So they're going to... You know, you know, kind of know a little bit more about what they can do themselves. You know, they 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 know their own limitations to a point, mm -hmm. and you know, until they start practicing and realize that there were no limitations, and they can actually go much farther than they might have expected. Okay. Whereas, if you have you know, like a six or seven year old whose parents are 
you know, signing them up for lessons and, you know, because they just want to kind of get them, you know, going in a, in a discipline to kind of give them a little bit more structure or just, I don't know, trying to get rid of them for 30 minutes at a time. You know, every situation is different. For sure. But uh, holding their, you know, holding their focus, trying to explain concepts to them, um, that might be more of the challenge rather than, you know, trying to, you know, introduce new repertoire or something like that. Have you ever had a student come in with, with uh, being taught previously bad techniques and had to rewire them? All the time. How does one time. how does one begin to deprogram bad technique? Um, constant reminders and repetition. Because it's uh, so I have cats at home, and if they do a bad thing, they get the squirt bottle. Oh my goodness! Yes. So uh, eventually they learn. Not to do, not to do that thing anymore, right? So not that I have a squirt bottle for the students whenever they do a bad oh, thing. Yeah. That, would be, <laughs> that would be terrible. But, uh, you know, whenever I see them reverting back to an old habit, I'll have them stop and notice what they're doing. Because once you're made aware of a bad habit, or any habit really, then you're like, oh, I'm doing that again. Now you're, Then you're kind of aware of it, and it kind of, like refreshes your your mind a little bit and it brings um, focus to it yeah it it brings focus to it and uh so if i have somebody that's you know has like a bad position you know doing this i'll 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 just say wrist you know Mm -hmm. fix the wrist because i know we've talked about it before and naturally goes back they just might naturally go back to it maybe because they're not practicing enough Mm. or maybe they're practicing badly still yes or they're just not you know Thinking, you know, and it's and that's okay as long as you yeah. you are developing a practice regime that works for you, um, and you know, just those reminders that you know you need to fix this, fix this, fix this, over and over and over again, and eventually they'll naturally just fix it on their own, and then a natural it just becomes second nature to play correctly. And a lot of that is recording yourself and looking back at your recordings too. I'm sure. Oh yeah, I. One of the things I will tell them is to get a mirror and mm. watch themselves play. So in uh, the visual arts, like if you're painting or drawing or something like that, one of the best ways to see if your uh, perspective and your uh, – uh, gosh, what's the word? Different ratios are correct is to look at it backwards through a mirror. Really? Yeah, my my dad's a painter, so these are the oh, random, yeah. <laughs> random fun facts that I've learned over the years. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, so if you're watching yourself play, then you'll notice a lot of things that you wouldn't have otherwise noticed. Huh. Uh, that's one of the be- That's how I taught myself to you know play with a straight bow and use the flat hair and all that kind of stuff. Because if I'm watching myself and I'm playing like this, because it's very different being behind the instrument. Oh, of course. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Watching yourself, recording yourself, because then, you know, going back to, do you like your own sound? Mm. Well, what does it sound like on the other end, on the other side of the instrument? Yeah, that's, it's completely different. It's, it's mind-boggling, even our voices. My voice yeah. sounds different in my head than what it does to you. Yep. My, uh, the cello is going to sound different from you sitting behind the sound, uh, bell? What's it called? Uh, Chamber, the sound chamber, what is it called? 
The like the where the resonance comes from because it comes out. Oh, the body. The body. Yeah, yeah. the body. I guess that's what it'd be called. Yeah, because uh, the sound is going that way, and you're getting whatever's rebounding or whatever's coming from the core instrument itself. Exactly. It's gonna, um, it's probably gonna be darker from what what you're hearing. Uh, yep, and I mean it also depends on the space that you're in. Also depends on the space. Yeah. Uh, if you're in a good acoustic room, if you're in a bad acoustic room. Um, and that's an- that's another thing to be said. Play around in different areas so that way you know what to do in different areas. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, experimentation with your own sound is one of the best things you can do. Um, you don't have to like play in a specific style or anything like that. Or like when you do certain things, you just kind of experiment with how you might approach playing. Uh, you know, different dynamics or something like, like you can do different things with the bow and, you know, it's all the artistic interpretation, but, uh, um, have fun. Yeah. I mean, it's all about, you know, enjoying the experience. Like if you're going to jump into a lake, the purpose of jumping into that lake is not to immediately get out of the water. No, not quite. It is to, you know, luxuriate in the experience of being in the water. Luxuriate. Yeah. That's a, that's a ten dollar word. word. Yeah, <laughs> I'm broke now. <laughs> so, um, besides teaching, what else do you do uh, to gain revenue? Um, well, well, currently, I mean, I still have to work a day job since the uh, the uh, pandemic. Yeah, so um, the pandemic kind of threw a wrench into things because I'm sure I wanted to start developing an in person studio, and it was going pretty quickly. And I was thinking, wow, this is great. So said I in January of 2020. This is great. <laughs> yes. So then right. everything went online. Um, and with that came online teaching. So uh, I, I've discovered that a lot of parents thought that their kids could not concentrate over Zoom uh, for, you know, the 30 minutes that we had. It's just bad. <laughs> and my, I just think it's bad. It's... I've I've heard mixed reviews, mm. um, so I still teach some online, um, just because of uh, you know a logistics thing. Because I still you know work full time, you know mm-hmm. like eight to four thirty, and then go you know I would go teach. So um, from that perspective, so there are some good things about it, and there are some uh, questionable things that are better in person. Right, that was uh, one of the hardest things for a music composition person, or because uh, you didn't have the teacher to grab your hand and f- meld it into the shape that it needed to be, or uh, or put your instrument in the in the position it needed to be, uh, or use your hands to, to like for conducting how how to do different hands, how to do different motions. That's what that's the correct term uh, for conducting without being there watching. Uh, in person as opposed to a flat screen where it's hard to tell what's what's going on. Uh, but some people are good at it, and, and I give them credit to that. Yeah, I mean, and when you're uh, connected in a disconnected way like that, that forces your hand to also be able to describe how to do things. So yeah. um, that's, that's kind fair. of one of the pros of uh, teaching online. You then, well, from that teaching standpoint you kind of learn how to describe to a student 
to hold the instrument correctly so that you can articulate your thoughts a little bit better, which then in turn makes you think about your own way of holding the instrument, so on and so forth. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and um, so then when you get in person, then you can talk to them about it because the uh, uh, one of the ways that, in my mind, uh, a concept sticks best is if they kind of figure it out for themselves. Mm. So if you kind of lead them to a solution, you know, you can talk to them through and it's not like you're like hiding the answer away and of then course, you're going to give right. it to them once they figure it out on their own. It's not, it's not like that at all. But um, if the correct technique is a logical conclusion that they come to on their own, you know, with, with that guidance, that's what's going to stick the most just because it makes common they sense. They made their connection. They made, they made the connection. connection. It's all about the connecting the dots for them. Yeah, that's that's some of the one of my favorite ways of teaching. I teach music theory. Or I taught music uh-huh. theory for a while, and one of my favorite things was to was to teach the logic behind it because every, you can you can say you know what a secondary dominant dominant is, but what is its purpose? How did it get there? Yeah. That's a whole different other question. I you know I know that this is a five of five and it goes to the five of this and blah blah blah. But what's the purpose behind it? What's the movement behind it? How does the theory work? And if, so if I say, if I just lead them through that logic, because it's surprisingly, musical theory is rather logical. Um, oh, it, it definitely is. I I, I also, I, I was a, a teacher's assistant. Oh, yeah. I also helped teach music theory. Um, and <laughs> a lot of the teaching was how to get around what I like to refer to as academic legalese. It's a bunch of words that they, they made up to make it, you know, to kind of try to put things in order, but then in that order, it kind of confuses people a little bit from the practical reality of the situation. Oh, for sure. Well, because music theory gets so intense that it is literally, some of the stuff that they say, it's literally, especially when you get into, like, jazz, oh my it gosh. gets made up. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> there was, there was a, a, a meme I saw recently where they compared, uh, you know how you can... Uh, when you're like making an account for something and it has like suggest strong mm-hmm. password and the password now looks like the jazz a jazz chord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, at a certain point, jazz is purely make believe and purely theory. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, no, no logic. It just sounds nice. <laughs> and yes, that's all that matters really. But uh, I love I love what, going through the logical steps because when they make that connection, when they make that brain connection on their own, it's going to stick way, way longer because they made that brain connection by themselves as opposed to you just telling them this is that. Yep. And that's why. The neurons have met and your job is done. Yeah. Because <laughs> those are some of, that's some of the, the best – that's the best way I learned in uh, school here was uh, uh, I can remember a lot of the Old Testament class – because he was, uh, he laid it out uh, logically. Well, if this is the covenant, and that, and you know, and this is a little bit religious, but this is the way I learned. Uh, if this is the covenant, and they did something wrong, what's going to happen? Oh, that makes sense. Why Israel is now forty years in the wilderness, <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, exactly. Um, but simple logical walkthroughs like that help so immensely. I, I think that's one of the best ways to teach. Period, I think. Yeah, yeah, I'd have to agree with that. And additionally, when you're in an academic setting like that, not only do you have to deal with you know trying to make that connection, but there are also different um, fields of study that you're having to deal with. Like uh, I, well, like when you're in, like trying to instruct them or explain a concept that the professor 
who's, you know, been in music theory for 20 mm-hmm. years, thinks that everybody can understand it. Like, why can't you count to eight? And I was like, well, <laughs> let me count the ways. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when you're in a, a, you know, it's like a teaching session where kids come to you for help, you might have, you know, economics majors. You might have uh, sociology majors, physics students, you know. They all think differently. They're yeah. all in a different mindset. It's incredible, and you always have to try to make that connection. That's, you know, sometimes, you know, we might fail in making that connection, but that's well, just, that's the fun part. part of, yeah. This, how do you how do you explain a person who thinks in numbers how this this particular concept works? How do you explain someone who thinks in abstract uh, abstract ways as like an artist? How do you explain that abstractly to them in a way that makes sense to them? How do you yep. explain anything logically, abstractly, right? <laughs> yep. One of the arts of teaching is the art of connecting the abstract to the concrete. Yes. And that's a hard thing sometimes to do. It's extremely difficult. <laughs> so as a performer, what have been your some of your uh, top performances in your mind? Um, well, the one of my more exciting ones was I got to actually play uh, a concerto with the Elizabethan College Community Orchestra um, as the soloist. Oh wow! Yeah, that was That's cool. Yeah, that was very exciting. Uh, Probably nerve wracking. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the way that it worked, it wasn't part of their typical because they have like a concerto competition, so it wasn't part of their oh, typical wow. program. But I'm as, as a community community member, I can't participate in that really. Of course. Um, but. Uh, I just happened to mention to the conductor, you know, I'm working on this concerto, the Weinberg cello concerto, and he listened to it, and he gave me a call, and was like, we need to play this for the program that we were working on. And I was like, yes, let's do it. Um, so I got that opportunity in um, November of 2018. Yeah, I think that was it. Has there ever been a performance where something has gone utterly wrong? Oh, yes. Tell My me about f- it. <laughs> So, I'm in uh, 10th grade in high school, and I decide I want to play the Bach cello suite, prelude number one. Da 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 da. That's the one that talking pre show. Yes. The one that, if you know any cello suite, it's that one. It's that one. And this performance will forever live in my mind because it's so much went wrong. Um, <laughs> so. 10th grade, I go on stage for the talent show at the high school. Oh, not a talent show. Oh, yes, the talent show. Oh, no. Because high schoolers are not ones to judge at all, are they? Uh, not at all, no. <laughs> so I go on stage, and I start playing, and from memory. First mistake? Yeah, that's my first mistake. <laughs> And suddenly, I don't remember what I'm supposed to play. And I forget, like, three lines of music. And I start fumbling around and just completely mess up, like, the first, like, the second half of the first page of the piece. Fortunately, nobody really knows classical music anymore. Of course, yeah, right. So they didn't really pick up on the fact that I had majorly ruined this piece. Uh... So they all thought it was great anyway, but I still. But internally, I, I still know. I know. It's like you can't give me thanks. Yeah, you you, you can't applaud me you for can't this. Applaud. No, you, you, they start applauding. Stop. <laughs> yes. Boo me, please. Please hold. 
<laughs> I will accept silence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's some, some of the hardest things to do as a musician is when people tell you good job, you have to accept it. Yeah, accepting a compliment is going to be a skill that you need to learn. Yes, you can't say oh, I did horrible because they didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, you have to consider where they're coming from. They don't know the instrument as well as you do. Right. Unless you ask them and find out that they're a professional and then they thought you did a good job anyway. And they're just like, oh, you were in the audience? Well, I'm glad I didn't know that until afterwards. Right, of course, yes. But uh, if they come up to you and say, that was amazing, great job, you just got to... Say thank you. That's it. Yeah, you just you thank them and appreciate that they appreciated you. Yeah. Don't, don't, go, don't start making excuses because it, it's, it's not the point. Yeah, that'll that'll cheapen it for them. And, it'll cheapen it for yeah. them, and and then you're gonna think about it later and be like, why did I say that? Yes, negative self talk is one of the hurdles that I, among many many musicians, many musicians, must, everyone deals with that. Yeah, yeah, must uh, tackle. Have you ever had all your strings burst and all your hair sh- horse strings? Uh, no. So not on my uh, on my bow, but on my cello. Yes. So uh, this was for an audition. Right before it, I was practicing the piece, and the one of my strings snapped, and like flew off the instrument. That like, can flew kill you, can it? Like it's it really hurt. Yeah, it can really hurt your face. I uh, might wh- be speaking from personal experience. What? What the? Uh, what do you do in that? You just. You, can, well, you can't throw it. All you can do is really like flinch and hope that it doesn't hit your face, because um, you don't know where the string is really going to go. Of course, but, right. Uh, the real the uh, next question is where am I going to get another string? string? So it's and restring it in time. Yeah. And since I was in high school and had like no money, I just, you know, so where happen. am I going to get a, a duplicate? <laughs> Luckily, somebody had a spare I could use. Well, that's nice. Uh, yes, but having a spare set of strings and a spare bow is very essential. It is really funny to me whenever. Uh, I, I watch these musical fails all the time. And whenever it's a little kid and they go up and they start playing and they boop, <laughs> and all the hairs come off. Which just happened. Which happened so many times. I wasn't supposed to play that. <laughs> uh, what do you do in that? Because uh, is, is that a case of the, I, I assume it's the case of it being too tight. It depends. I mean, sometimes it's because, like, if it's the bow, maybe the bow is warped. Because it's not tightened or loosened enough, maybe they're just badly made. It's it's case by case. Sometimes the strings are tightly wound and too tightly wound, and then you just, um, you know, then you have to make sure they're loosened. But uh, if that ever happens, especially in a public setting, all you can re- like all you can really do is just kind of acknowledge it and maybe laugh with the audience because yeah, definitely make a joke out of it. Yeah, they're on the same side as they're on the same side as you. Everybody was not expecting it. So right. it's like, oh, oh no, this, this thing happened. Um, now, I know that they have a procedure for this kind of thing in performances. Really? Yes. In like, perf- like with professional orchestras. So if you're the soloist and one of your strings breaks. Um, Isn't the first chair gives you their, their the first Yeah, the first chair gives you theirs and so on and so forth until the last chair person <laughs> that, like, doesn't have an instrument, I guess. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> That'd be a funny comedy bit and a half. It's <laughs> like, I'm just sitting here. I don't know what to do. I was going to play Brahms, but now I'm not. Now, now I'm going to watch someone else play my instrument. Yes. And hope they don't break my instrument. Exactly. 
and I'm sure they, I guess they have some kind of replacement, something or other, but they have the money to get a second. Of course, instrument. right? If yeah, if you're, if you're playing a Philharmonic, you definitely have at least. Yeah, because it's all about the seamless experience for them, so it's not like it's gonna be too much of an issue. No, not at all. So, what else have been some of your uh, favorite performances that you've done? Uh, places you've been to? Uh, concerts, even. Ah, oh, gosh, that's a great question. So, I'd have to say one of my favorite performances was um, with the New World Symphony in Baltimore. Baltimore no, not yeah. Baltimore, D.C. It was at the Kennedy Center. That's, that is D.C. Wherever that is. Is that DC? I think it's out of DC or Baltimore. It's yeah. they're so close. It might as well be both. <laughs> yeah. So this is so uh, two two different experiences, um, and this kind of harkens back to what, you remember when I was talking about that kind of inspiring moment where mm-hmm. you just like you just feel it. You're in, you're in, you're in, in the moment. Nothing else matters. The universe is not moving at that specific moment in time, and you're just you know you and the music are looking straight at each other, and you finally acknowledge one another. Um, the first experience was when I was in college, um, and they were playing a, a concert, and that's when I got to, to hear Ein Heldenleben, which is one of Richard Strauss, one of my favorite of Richard Strauss's tone poems. Um, and that was incredible. And I was just looking at the cello section, and I was thinking to myself, this is what I need to do with my life. Um, and then the second was uh, a little bit later. Uh, I was out of college for a couple of years, and I went and they played the Pines of Rome. And mm. I was sitting in the back because I bought the cheap tickets. Of course. <laughs> um, and at the end of the Pines of Rome, which in my opinion is one of the most epic buildups in music that I can think of off the top of my head. Really? The... Some of the trumpets are instructed to play off stage, so some of these the the trumpet players came and uh, were standing like a stone's throw away from where I was sitting with the friends that I had with me. That's cool. Yes, and uh, in both scenarios, it was incredible to see how this body of professional musicians could be so connected it, it was you know a firsthand experience seeing what like like perfect intonation feels mm. like or sounds like and to really experience Unified a story right. rather than a bunch of notes Fair. right because you know when we're going through high school through college we're you know experience we're interacting with people that are learning how to express themselves. You know, they're on that journey. And when you experience a bunch of people that have not necessarily completed the journey, but they are at a very advanced level of ensemble playing, it is an otherworldly experience. It's like giving you that uh, kind of next-level peak if there are two performances that you 
well, I'll answer this myself, but this answer this question is coming to you too. Uh, three pieces that you have to see a professional uh, Philharmonic or whatever ensemble do. But I'll answer mine. Three pieces that I need to see before I die. It's Rhapsody in Blue. Ma- uh, oh, I keep forgetting her. Uh, Schubert's Unfinished Eighth. The Unfinished Symphony. The Unfinished Symphony. I have to hear that one. Because I think I would argue that that's probably the, the biggest build up. Um, from when, at least in the first movement, with all the jumps and the whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. <laughs> That that was the first classical piece that made me get chills. Honestly, I've actually gotten to play that. It's, yeah, yeah, it's great. It's so much fun, and it's yep. so good. Uh, I'm so happy I got introduced that. I had to conduct that piece. That was so much fun. You got to conduct it. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, um, that's so, incredible. Yeah, that was so much fun. Um, and uh, the third piece, I don't have a third piece. Uh, here the what's the th- uh thronobody? the Phenomenity, uh is it the piece that that's it was the piece that was written after Hiroshima and Nagasaki got Serenity bombed. for the Hiroshima Serenity victims the Hiroshima by Christoph Penderecki. Yeah, the one of the most soul chilling, uh, goosebumpy if uh, pieces I've ever heard. Uh, granted, I'm I'm no classical musician uh, connoisseur. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean that that also brings into question what is classical music anymore, mm. right? Because if you if you think about it, what was the music of yesteryear considered when you're in the 18th century? New music that contemporary artist Beethoven, right, or that you know that rascal Mozart coming up with new things that are raking and you know shaking the establishment <laughs> you know they're they're changing how how things are done and now we consider them you know the old stuffy establishment you know the old dead white guys you know that uh everybody wants wants to hear and every time somebody says classical music oh they think oh mozart oh uh you know Bach, Beethoven, Vivaldi. Bach, Beethoven, Vivaldi, you know, all those names of the Even people that lived like 300 years Vivaldi ago. Vivaldi isn't technically classical. He's yeah. technically Baroque, isn't he? He's Baroque. Yeah. Yeah, that's another thing. Like me. Classical music? Who is it nowadays? <laughs> um, but when somebody says classical music, they're really thinking of a very small subset of music history. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, because uh, there's, there's like, there's ancient music, there's... Mm-hmm. Uh, like medieval music, Baroque, the list is endless. Romantic, then neo-romantic, then uh, uh, what is it? It gets so convoluted so quickly. Um, Yeah. And it's all beautiful music. Yeah, I mean, most people, when they say classical music, you think an orchestra. like Like an orchestra, and they're playing, you know, old, like, Bach music and when it really could be something completely different by your definition. I mean, there's a dic- the dictionary definition of you know Western classical music. Mm-hmm. It's a very small, very closed off perception of what classical music is. Yeah. Um. I mean, and even in that dictionary definition sense. Some, you know, 
pop music, some uh, new, I don't know what the kids are calling it nowadays. <laughs> but uh, pop, music. Pop, pop music. Pop music. Yeah, pop music. If you look at it through that dictionary definition, some of that might qualify as neo-baroque music. You're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's it might be a stretch, but... By the letter, it might be considered as such. If you put all those instruments back in the classical instruments, you would be right. Yeah, now that's just looking at it through a purely theoretical and academic standpoint, which nobody really cares nobody about cares when about, it comes no. Yeah, nobody cares about that. Nobody cares about that. So it's the it's 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 something that's, you know, up for debate. You know, I don't have the right answer about what classical music is. I have an idea of what it is for me. What it is for me. And, you know, there are some, you know, like lots of things that I will listen to because I like what it has to say. It's not necessarily in the, you know, vein of what people think of as classical music. Like one day it, it might be that I want to listen to a Rachmaninoff piano concerto. The next day I might want to listen to Alice in Chains and ACDC. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that's, you know, don't I don't think it's healthy to necessarily kind of box it in. Like no, that. it's not. It's, yeah. You shouldn't box uh, stuff in because it's truthfully music. Music is eternal, and it's and it's everywhere. And you shouldn't box in music. Oh, that's just that type of music, and that people who listen to that type of music are boring or whatever. There are, I have felt more emotion uh, listening to at least Rhapsody in Blue uh, than I have ever by like Bohemian Rhapsody, right? And uh, Bohemian Rhapsody is like, if you're going to feel anything, it's that song. Oh my gosh. Right? Queen is one of my favorite bands of all time. Right. But they, uh, some of these songs got nothing on some of these older, uh, older songs that are just riveting and, uh, or even like even some of the what what is the the German one that's the uh, the Elven King and the the song oh what is it called oh the one by uh, Schubert maybe I think so it's like where the where where the father and son are trying to get home but on the horse on oh, the yeah. horse yeah yeah that one that, I don't remember the name of it uh, yeah I can't remember remember it either but it, it it's the, the the basic story is is that is this father and son are riding home. And the son keeps getting tempted by this evil elf king. And uh, I won't spoil the end of it, but it's a masterpiece in... Uh, it is a masterpiece in music because uh, this, the, the melody, the, the melody, the way that, that it runs, he, he uh, Schubert, runs through each tonality senator, senator, center of, of each of that melody as, as a part of the tell the story. And it's just ingenious and it's so sad. Uh, and it's so exciting, and it's so I'm I'm not gonna give spoilers, but it's it's like people will consider oh that's posh music or or but even though that was like that was the run in the mill for the day everyday crowd music, yeah. it it all comes down to that was uh, pop music back in the day, yeah that that was that was like pop music music for the people back in the day and it, it for me it all comes down to relatability, you know and you know. Different audiences back then might have had more education than on this, or they might have been more in tune with the kind of music that they were playing back then. So, you know, 
when Beethoven's fifth music, or yeah, fifth music, his his, <laughs> his fifth symphony, when his fifth symphony came out and rocked the uh, the, the classical music yeah. world, uh, that might be like today's uh, Bohemian Rhapsody when that came out and that you know, you know, shook the generations. Um, you know, you, you always have to consider the context that it was in, and and for me, it all comes down to relatability and you know the relevance. So. You know, some people nowadays might think of things differently because of, you know, the different experiences that they've had. So what are three performances that you would have to see in concert before you died? Or So, yeah, so I'm just going to mention two symphonies that I, yeah, they're going to be symphonies, but that's just because I, uh, I, I love the music that's in them. It's uh, Scriabin's first symphony. He wrote it when he was 24, six, six movements, and he uses a choir in the last movement. And Like all symphonies should. Yes. yes. <laughs> like they all should, of course. Um, particularly the uh, first, third, and sixth movements of that symphony are my favorite. Um, and... Penderecki's Seventh Symphony, The Seven Gates of Jerusalem. Yeah. I discovered that piece and have not been able to stop listening to it. And, um, oh gosh, a third uh, piece would probably have to be, um, let's see. Probably We Are the Champions by Queen. If I can see Queen live, I need to see them. No, that's, that's very fair. Very fair. I've, um, I've actually been really uh, into, or at least for a while, a lot of pop pop star musicians, at least I know Fall Out Boy did, uh, they've been uh, doing tracks with orchestras. Yeah, I've, I've heard that that's, uh, that's kind of coming back. I mean, that's kind of... Circling back a little bit, that's the, uh, the the medium that people are being exposed to the orchestral timbre nowadays. It's just so like a background good. for it. It is so good. It's so good. It is so good. Just hearing uh, regular pop songs being transformed, uh, written contempor- contemporarily to uh, orchestral settings. It's wild, the stuff you can do. Um, have you ever heard of Adam Neely at all? No, I haven't. He's a great bass player, and he reharmonized Adele's "Hello" to uh to add in a, a big brass band, effectively. Wow! And he's got like diminished chords and augmented chords in there, and it sounds fantastic. And I, it's one of it's it's one of the things that like really inspires me of like the, the newer uh, musicians is. The way that they reharmonize, they arrange things differently, and uh, it still sounds like listenable. Yeah, that actually is a practice that dates back all the way to the medieval oh, times. Of course, right? Yeah, yeah. They they used to uh, write for voices, not like mm, an actual mm-hmm. voice, but this is the the line that needs to be played along with these other lines. It doesn't really matter the instrument, but it will sound good. Yeah, together. That's that's a project I've been kind of working on secretly as well as uh, trying to because what what if you would ever want to do this what you would do is you keep the melody line of the singer the same 
and just figure out what chords could fit nicely into that. And that's that's also just a wonderful thought experiment too cuz if you like music theory, you enjoy it. If you don't like music theory, maybe try something else. <laughs> and I I think that's kind of like a testament to the universally applicable nature of music where mm. the it doesn't you don't really have to know music theory so to say to know what kind of sound you might want to hear or what and, sounds good or what sounds good like you can take any piece and redo it remix it reorchestrate it slim it down beef it up whatever you want to do with it to make the kind of sound that you want and that can you know that can be your start into finding your own you know you know your own voice cuz that's um that's also an interesting concept a composer having their own voice in music when they're not actually using their own voice yeah well yeah. that's something i so one thing i do as a composer always is that i will always include horns and strings because i just love the sound of them and, and all, like all my pop songs will they have horns and they have strings in it and that's my style uh without granted Sometimes I do sing, but most of the time I don't because I can't sing as well as other people can. I can't sing at all, so don't feel bad. <laughs> well, I, when, if you ever listen to my songs, it's auto-tune. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Uh, and I was too, I couldn't afford a singer. Um, but it's, you can't have your own style without having uh, like a voice, right? The way you voice your instrument is your style. Yeah, and it's uh it doesn't it's it doesn't have to be for others to no. like. It can be your own sound that you yeah. find interesting because that's the way that music is pushed anyway. Is by you know, if we st- if if music was purely a tradition that we would there would only be one piece on earth. And that'd be it. If it, yeah, if it was to maintain tradition, why bother trying to add anything new to it? Exactly, and that's yeah. not interesting. That's not fun. The no. only the only reason why music ever progressed was because oh, I want to try it this way. List probably granted he was a rock star in his time, but uh, the older people were like, oh, how dare he? Um, yes, how dare he play with three hands? Three hands, <laughs> and uh, impossibly so. Yeah, impossibly so. Impossibly so. <laughs> Or uh, Rachmaninoff, where you have to have a whole extra foot on your pinky to reach some of these keys. <laughs> another instance in which the third hand would help. <laughs> yes, another instance. Um, and it's awesome. And that was, and that became mainstream. Who knows what's going to become mainstream in the future? Yeah, it's because uh, I've I've also dabbled in some composition as well, and it's hard to well. First off, I don't know if you've experienced this, but it's incredibly intimidating. Oh, absolutely! You have to create your own piece and then share it to people. Mm-mm. Yeah, because and and then you and then you kind of get into the mindset. Well, I have to write it so that people will well, like enjoy it. it, right? Right, because you've got like Beethoven, you've got Bach, and you've got Mozart, and you've got all these other people that are standing behind you, looking at you, like, "What are you trying <laughs> to do?" <laughs> yeah, right. Like, <laughs> and like those are the uh, those are like the standards of classical music. Yeah, so it's very hard to write for you yeah if somebody likes it 
then that's good for great. Them. Yeah. If they don't, that's okay. That's okay too. And if the first piece that you write because you're trying things out, if it sucks, that's okay. Then it sucks. It's okay. And it's okay. And you move forward because that's yeah. the, only, the only way you get better at something is by sucking at it. Yep. Over and over again. Yep. And then you learn new things and then you figure out new ways to do it and you get slowly better and better. Yeah, listen. I am a god. I was god awful at piano, god awful percussion. In some respects, I still am, but I'm way better than I was when I was when I first started. The people that we go to to learn from are the people that have failed enough times to know what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people look at look up to me as I did the show and they're like, "Oh, you're doing great." I'm looking back at some of my first interviews and I'm like. Whoever let me do this, yeah. And even even exactly. yeah, even now, I'm sure in a few months I'll look back at some of the other interviews. I'm like, what was I doing? I'm an idiot. Feel free to have me back then too. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we actually have one of your pieces, uh, one of the pieces that you played rather, uh, sonato for cello and piano, opus one, uh, six. Who's it by? Uh, the one we're going to be listening to is by Samuel Barber. This is actually a recording from my senior recital in college, which was a few moons ago, so don't judge. <laughs> so what is the piece about? What is it? Is it a tone poem? Is, is it just a, a, is it programmatic? Is it just a piece of music? Um, this one is, I would say, about, it kind of com- it combines musical aesthetics with a tone poem. It tells a story, but you're really there for the, the different textures. That are trying to evoke something. There you go. So it's not traditionally like one five one. Here are the notes to expect. It's much more seamless than that. It will go to different places and different textures. Without telling you about it. Yeah, they're much more distinguished textures than what you might otherwise think of when you're thinking of a classical piece. Well, we're Which gonna play it. Reason why I picked it. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, well. For well, duh, for a senior recital, I'm gonna pick something technically challenging <laughs> at least, so you can show that hey, I can do something with this. Yeah, I learned something over the past four years, whether you think so or not. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. So uh, we're gonna play a snippet of of that. Thank you. 
and that was just one of the movements of that of that twenty minutes sonata. <laughs> Only one. Yep. Only one. Um, that's that's another thing about classical music. I just love. You can just sit there and relax and just listen to, uh, a lot of times just a a wall of surrounding sound and just lose yourself in the music. Yeah, and since you get multiple movements going on, you get um, a bunch of little different ideas. They all have different uh, stories. Yeah, they all have different stories. They all have different textures. And it's curious, like, why did he decide to put those together? I don't know. And then when you get into uh, the whole aspect of, oh, when did he write this? What was going on in his life that made him make this song? Uh, like for Elise, for example, uh, to give a popular one, Beethoven's for Elise. He mm-hmm. wrote it for a woman, uh, and uh, he he uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but she got he re- she rejected him. Yeah, yeah. Even though he wrote this piece for her. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, just having to, and then what piece did he write after that rejection? Right. <laughs> exactly. Probably wouldn't have the. Fifth Symphony for no. So thank you, Elise, for rejecting Beethoven, so you could give us the the best symphony ever. <laughs> yes. Um, so I'm curious. You are getting into writing uh, writing material for the cello. How mm-hmm. does one decide what to write? How do you write a, a training book for a cello? What is the the path you went down? What need did you see to write that? Yeah. So I was learning. Uh, Popper's Etude Number Thirty Three. For anybody that plays the cello, they know that that is very difficult, and it's it contains a lot of um, thumb position action and a lot of movement around the fingerboard. And I was thinking to myself, I haven't really seen any exhaustive works that work with uh, arpeggiation exercises in thumb position. Mm. Some position does not necessarily mean the upper register. It can cover any part of the fingerboard. So I was thinking to myself, well, this might be a great way to write some exercises for myself to work on getting there. Are you talking about thumb position where the thumb is getting contact with the string or just the back lower? Oh, yeah. Sorry. The thumb position when the thumb is on the string. So one of wow. the defining things of the cello and the string bass is that you can your thumb acts as a... Uh, almost like a portable nut. The nut is mm-hmm. the thing at the top of the scroll that kind of like prevent the connects the strings from the scroll onto the fingerboard. So you're pretty much taking that and moving it around with your with your thumb, which means your thumb now needs to know where everything is. So that's like an extra level of weirdness that comes right, with of th- that kind of technique. Um, so, and then I. Going back to the the book, I started thinking, well, you know, since this really seems to be kind of like a gap in uh, method methodology, I haven't really, I, I did research, I couldn't really find anything that, you know, covered this in this kind of extensive way. So I um, developed... Uh, so I, I worked with that idea because it was based on like a specific type of arpeggiation motion that happens where you're taking different inversions of the octave formation um, and moving it around. So uh, similar to how, you know, there's inversions with chords, mm-hmm. right, where you take one note and put it on top. Well, there's actually different 
fingering patterns, which I refer to in the piece as a uh, well, that piece of the, the book as uh, fingering inversions because they actually play out the arpeggiation of an inversion of the chord. Mm. Right, so um, it's making creating new terminology. Yeah, yeah. So I actually found that I had to create like a terms and definitions book so I could kind of <laughs> I created my own academic legalese. Oh, there I. <laughs> but uh, so I had to create that whole terms and definitions section to really kind of help myself understand what I was trying to say, mm-hmm. and then I could go through and um, you know I have a section that's called. Uh, Arpeggiations of Harmonic Association. I know that's a mouthful. That's legally to... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not relatable at all. But what it does is it takes you through all of the chords, uh, barring jazz chords, you know, just regular typical tonal yeah. chords that contain a specific note. So if we were going through C major, right? They're not necessarily C major, just with the key of or the note C. Mm-hmm. You're someone starting on C, you're going to have C major, A minor, F major, F minor, C minor, A flat major, uh, diminished, augmented, all these other things that you can play using A, and it walks you through all of those, mm-hmm. doing them on all the sets of strings. Like the, the right, A and yeah. D string, the G and D string, and the C and G string. Um, and that kind of got me thinking about uh, scales. All of my students know scales that I talk a lot of, I talk a lot about scales. Um, so I actually created my own method for teaching scales. Um, and it deals a lot with, so I focus on our two strongest fingers, which are the index and the, and the, the middle finger. Mm-hmm. And it walks you through what I call the skeletal structure, the position without the filling. Right, so it starts with just the, the first finger and where that placement needs to be and on what string. And then if there's any kind of shift, you just slide to a specific position and then you can slide back. Because if you treat every shift as a glissando, that'll make moving around the instrument a whole lot easier. Um, and then, so I divide each one into three different sections. So there's the skeletal structure, which just moves your first finger around. The second level, which is the scale with emphasis on the shift, so you play it so that you go back to the first finger at the end of the position, and then you can shift. And then the third level is the original scale mm. that you would go through. That's interesting. So how is this a plan to be released for others, or is it just a project for yourself? Well, right now, I so whenever my students need like more material to, to work with, um, I'll just send it to them as a PDF. Um, I would like to release it. I'm working on a book proposal because I'll have my different scale, you know, scale works as, you know, second or two octaves, three octaves, and four octaves together, mm-hmm. you know, so those three would be together. And then um, and then the arpeggiation exercises, which would be its own other thing. Uh, so I would like to release it. I would be, I'd feel really accomplished if I could, you know, have a, a published book to my name. Um, but as for right now, I'm, you know, just working with the uh, PDFs. That'd be kind of cool. I, I'm sure that'd be uh, a hard niche to 
bring into a hard book proposal to sell. Yeah, yeah, because there's so many scale books out there. There's, there's already established methodologies uh, or yeah. method books, yeah. method and rhythms. Yeah, the, the, the only... Essentials. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's so many like essentials and lots of kids that are just learning this stuff. They don't go off of the... It. What's that? They don't need it. Yeah, then they they also are operating out of you know the essential elements, the yeah, Suzuki's of the world, that kind of thing. So um, the one thing I'm thinking will kind of help bring it to light in that niche is the fact that it's different in how it explains how to go about the instrument. Mm. And with the arpeggiation exercises, I just don't think there's a whole lot out there that's that exhaustive. Oh, it's enough. a couple hundred pages of material. Wow. Yeah. That's decent. Yeah. Well, for I mean, for each uh, each exercise, it's like 24 pages because you've got the major and minor scales. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. No, and that doesn't that even touch sense. the augmented and the synthetic scales and all that kind of other stuff. All the made-up scales. <laughs> yeah, the made-up scales. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So even if I just wanted to have like 10 different exercises, that's 240 pages right there. And that's without explanation. That's without the terms and definitions. So it's a lot, a lot, a lot of content. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So doing all of this, how do you not lose your passion? That is a very good question because I have personally experienced burnout when you try to make your passion your trade. Um, so I, when I graduated from college, I had experienced that burnout, so I kind of left the whole music thing behind me for a couple years. Um, and you, you really have to be honest with yourself and tell yourself, you know, what did I want from this? What do I want to do with this? Mm. Right? And um, because something is your passion does not mean it will last forever. I mean, if you wanted to, then you can try, you know, different things. But there's there's always things that can, you know, renew your interest and renew your energy into making something happen. The nice thing about music is that you can never be done learning. There is never going to be. You can always make stuff up too. Yeah, and you can always create your own material, and you can always think about things differently. Um, uh, you know, and you know, one of the things that kind of just brought me back to it was I just, you know, started to remember why I got into it in the first place, and that's just to enjoy the sound. Mm. Because it's all about, you know, how I feel when I'm playing the instrument, how it feels good to be able to play well. And it, um, it, it feels good to be able to, you know, create this content that will, you know, help me, help others when it comes to composition. You know, it, it feels good to be able to um, have original thought because... You know, if you think about it, original thought is actually extremely rare and difficult. Oh, yeah. And I, sometimes I wonder if other people have it. <laughs> <laughs> or thoughts at all, but who knows? Right, right, right. Um, but, uh, and when it comes to music theory, just kind of 
learning how people have approached it in different ways. There's there's bunches there's a lot of different ways to, you know, come at it in different angles. Um, but you know, if a, a good thing a good thing for your passion is also moderation. You know, if yeah. you have too much of a good thing, then it'll eventually make you sick. I know one person who only allows themselves to listen to one this particular symphony once every year. So that way it doesn't lose its uh, power or the, the catharsis. Exactly. And, you know, the idea of it being your passion is that you're always left wanting more. Mm-hmm. That's why they always say if you, if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. Right. Right? So you always have to have something left that you still want to discover. There still has to be that motivation. So with that, how do you also get in try to get into bigger orchestras, more notor no notorious notoriators, noteworthy <laughs> uh orchestras? Uh, is that a goal for you or is that something you're just not gonna get into? Um, I mean, I would certainly love to be able to play with the Berlin Philharmonic. Will that ever happen in my lifetime? I'm ninety-eight percent sure that it will not happen. <laughs> I'm two percent thinking that I have no idea what's going to happen. Well, of course. Um, so when it comes to working with a larger orchestra, that's when more practicality comes through because it's a very, music can sometimes, when it comes to like the art, larger orchestras, it can be much more of a, an, uh, an old school like network type thing where they, sure. they want to know who you've been studying with so that they kind of know what to expect. If you haven't been playing with Yo-Yo Ma, you're not getting in. Yeah, and you know, if you you know, if you play well but they don't like the style for that orchestra, then you might not also have that chance as well because you need to the strictest people. You have to play Mozart like Mozart. Yeah, and you, you also have Mozart to like Bach. You have to play well with an ensemble and lots right. of people want to be a soloist on the on the major net on the major like performance networks. Um so and not that's, that doesn't even go into the types of competition that you have because when you go when you take an orchestra like New York Philharmonic, right? Mm-hmm. What comes with that is you know, well, obviously you get to play with the New York Philharmonic, and that's incredible. That's incredible, yeah. It's like a, one of the world class orchestras. It's one of the best you know orchestras in the world, and then you also get paid like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, which is also nice. You get to be a musician for a living, and you know you have a quasi flexible schedule where you can you know teach at a local university or you can have your own students. So it's it's really kind of a great combination of work life balance, and you also get to make incredible music with incredible musicians and get paid a lot of money for it, mm-hmm. right? Um, so you're gonna have a couple thousand people that want to do that, right? And you've got them coming from Juilliard. You've got them coming from Curtis, from Peabody. Berkeley, from Brown, Yale, and all these all these big names, the Parish Conservatory, all these places where they've been playing since the age of seven or they're younger, gonna, yeah, or three or, or three, what, right. whatever you know, wherever they're at. And then, um, at and they're considered virtuosos. They have such technical talent, and then. You know that's the kind of thing that you're you're going up against, and they've you know they've had 
experiences, you know, going to music festivals or, you know, meeting all these big name people, you know, getting expertise advice. And they have mm -hmm. a whole list of things. It's like the list of things that are against you when it comes to that is massive. Is massive. Right. And if you're anything like me, you know, like while all of my friends were going to these music festivals, you know, I had to work. Uh, a job over the summer. I had the yep. yeah. I worked for UGI. I worked for a utilities company. You know, going around reading gas meters and practicing whenever I got home. Um, so it's so when you're going for a major audition, you you it's not impossible. It's going to be difficult. You just got to make sure that you are comfortable with what you're playing, and you know you don't you don't need to necessarily think that. It's all going to be lost, and yeah. it you have to uh, recognize that it's okay that that isn't your end goal. Yeah, even if you do want that to be your end goal, it's okay if it doesn't happen. Right. That's something that I've struggled with for a lot because for the longest time, you know, like I want to be this great cellist. I want to be, you know, playing all over the world and all that. And then you have to come to the reality that, um, you know, I. I studied at a local conservatory. I did not go to Juilliard. I did not go to Eastman. I did not go to one of those big names. You know, um, the teachers I had were great, but you know, uh, I you have probably didn't spend as much time as. Yeah, I didn't. Then. Yeah, I had to work, and you know, I I, I was a normal kid. So right. I, yeah. I, with normal I didn't parents. Have, yeah, normal kid, normal parents, and yeah, I did not have eight hours a day to practice. I was not forced to practice for six to eight hours a day, as some people are, um, as you can do with strings, because you don't, it doesn't ruin the air. Oh, yeah, or, that's right. Uh, yeah. I guess, well, I guess you, you'd have to build calluses, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. Okay, you need calluses, would... or else it's going to be very painful. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's my block on the cello. <laughs> yeah, I don't know who decided to put a thin metal wire across a piece of wood, and then you rub your fingers up and down it. It's not, <laughs> that's a good idea. But uh, Crazy people. Mine is not to question why. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, when when you come to that kind of reality that if you go for one of these things, your competition is going to be extreme, but you really don't have anything to lose. Yeah. Yeah. And everything to gain at that point. Nothing to lose, everything to gain, so you might as well try to go for the adventure. And you're so. going you're gonna to learn so much and meet so many cool people. And... Uh, Great, and you're going to meet some not so great people as well, but uh, yeah, it it can be cutthroat when when it's performance based. Literally, um, you're going to have some some cutthroat people that are vying for that spot. Yes. So, it you you always want to hold yourself true to your ethical and moral standards, of course. And so, speaking about your ethical and moral standards, <laughs> great segue. Uh, <laughs> How do you, how does your faith influence the way you uh, traverse your musical career? Uh, yeah, great question. So the so when you're around um, musicians, they're more often than not, like in the classical music uh, realm, uh, they're more often than not more educated. And when you're around more educated people, they are more often than not uh, more skeptical of Religion. Religion, as, you know, others might be who, who grew up. I mean, I grew up in the church and everything, and I have found that my musical upbringing has uh, 
you know, strengthen my beliefs because it introduced me into the idea of critical thinking and um, questioning, mm-hmm. right? Because you have to do that when you're playing an instrument in order to improve yourself. It's an investment into your own abilities and your own into the future creative process. Yeah, yeah, and you it that kind of mindset and lifestyle because being a musician is not just uh, a career. It's not just a job. It's a lifestyle. It's a mindset in addition to that. So it's kind of like this all-encompassing thing. And so that mindset cannot help but kind of bleed into other areas of your life where you question why. What is the purpose of this? Does this really make sense to me? Mm -hmm. So it kind of helps to that kind of discipline from music helped, you know, marry the ideas of personal truths and uh, religious ideals for me. Um, So, and that's how it's helped to kind of strengthen that it, when it, when it comes to religion, uh, I mean, it's not, well, it's not a taboo subject around here but like because you kind of just like assume about others you in the general sense mm-hmm. um but you know it's you rarely find someone come up to you and ask you uh it was great playing that? this concert with you what's your religious <laughs> perspective on life right um i just loved how you hit your your string you must be a christian <laughs> <laughs> exactly yes you're christian you're your your performance must have been divinely inspired, or right, yeah. that kind of thing. So, it's um, the one of the biggest things I would say that's uh, influenced it is uh, learning to love others. Mm. Is probably one of the biggest. Uh, uh, Christian ideas. I was say, that's probably that's probably for everyone. Like learning to love others and what that actually means. Yeah, and most people mistake loving others with being in love with others. Yeah, no, it's not. Loving people is a struggle. It is. No matter how easy you might find it, it's a struggle to accept others for who they are. It is. Regardless of anything about them that's different, you love them, you accept them, and that's part of the universality of music because it can bring you together because you're sharing a common purpose so it can help teach you how to love others to accept them as they are without conditions Mm -hmm. so what is worship or how would you describe or uh, define worship worship doesn't always mean music for me worship is uh when you're trying to you know praise god that can come in different ways right that means you want to me that means i am taking the skills that i have been given that i have been blessed with and using them to the best of my abilities right using them well acknowledging them investing in them you know like the uh the parable of the talents. Exactly. You are worshiping him by saying, by acknowledging that he has given you these gifts and you are going to use them to the best of your abilities. And invest them. And that's how you say thank you. 
thank you for giving me this. I appreciate that you've given this to me, and I am going to gonna share it. I'm going to share else. it. I'm going to build it. I'm going to take it and use it and invest it and try to uh, impact others in the best way that I can, whether that be you know as a musician, as an accountant, mm-hmm. as an engineer. Or as somebody who collects the trash every day. Right. It can influence, you know, it, it doesn't have to necessarily be through an occupation. It can just be, through you know. Through everyday life. Yeah. And that, I mean, that also takes acknowledging who you are, are. understanding yourself. Because there will be those people like, oh, I don't feel like I have any talents or skills like that. I can't speak well in front of people. I'm not an engineer. I might just be, a, you know, a barista in between degrees right now or something like that. Got talent enough to be a barista, I can't imagine. That's that's tough, yeah. Uh, uh, mocha cha- what? <laughs> and they always want cinnamon on top. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what is one thing that you know now that you wish you had known when you first started in this regard to music or uh, profession or anything? Um, I probably would have changed where I went to school. Fair enough. Yeah, to so when it so we are in the age of specialization yes. nowadays. Yes. So everybody that does their, you know, respective job is, you know, needs to be exceptional at it because mm-hmm. there's a hundred thousand other people that are just as good as you. So you yep. need to really have the best skill set. There's 320 million Americans, and you're one of them. <laughs> and I am one of them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so Gettysburg is a liberal arts college. You get a great rounded education in every aspect of academia. And liberal I also had the additional music curriculum. Right. That's where I, I Gettysburg helped develop my interest in economics and financial policy. And... Uh, but when it comes to <laughs> specializing, if you go to a conservatory like, I don't know, Eastman or Peabody or Juilliard where it's specifically music, you will make the connections there. You will have the opportunities there that will help to you no know, launch. Yeah, gen eds, you know, gen eds or the course requirements or something like that. Going to a specialized uh, school like that and having that very specific educational experience would probably be something that I would change. Mm. I would also start the cello at the age of four, not the piano. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, last question. What are some mistakes that you have made or seen other cellists or students make, and how can we curb that? Um, I think one of the biggest things is not respecting the time and dedication it takes to actually perfect the craft. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes, because when when you say to someone that you're a professional musician and you play an instrument, the thing that they're going to think of first is the most famous name with that instrument because that mm-hmm. person is really good. So they're going to think professional means that you're at this caliber. Oh, when really, like, yeah, you know, like you're down, down here, here because instead of practicing the three to six hours a day, sacrificing the social events, you know, sacrificing the other things that you might have to give up in order to, you know, put the time and dedication into mastering the craft, 
you only put the one to two hours a day. You know, mm -hmm. you always you have to you have to acknowledge to yourself what is this worth to me. It, the meme is is someone come oh you're so good I wonder what what you did to make you so good is practice I can't I I just want to know I wish I was that good practice is <laughs> yeah is it some some gift you from above get, you yeah. must be naturally practice no it's practice practice yeah it once you get into like years and years of study and practice you really do understand the uh, phrase I think it was Bach that said it where he said um, being a great musician is 1% talent and 99% hard work. Yes. And really when it comes to being, you know, being a good musician, it's just about the critical thinking. Because if you want to make effective process in a practice or effective progress in a, in a practice session, you need to be able to think quickly about what, you, what you're playing, how to make Regiment improvements. time and all that jazz. Exactly. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, I've had fun too. So, do you have any upcoming performances? Uh, any any recitals or anything like that? Um, the Republic. <laughs> possibly, I am where I'm in the midst of trying to form a new musical duo, like uh, educational group, hmm. down here in Lancaster that performs in unlikely spaces. So I can keep you informed on that. Well, hey, check all that. Find that stuff out on his website. GregoryFleury.com. Yep. Updates is, coming soon. Updates coming soon. That's F L U R Y. Only one R. One R short of a snowflake. One R <laughs> if you enjoy what I'm doing, please be sure to follow us anywhere you like. We you can search up the story Koi Rosen. That's C O R Y R O S E N. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, even YouTube now. Or also on TikTok, whether it's for the better or for not. Um and if you want to keep up to all, keep up to date with all of our events and guests, check us out on Instagram at the underscore story underscore podcast or facebook.com forward slash the story Corey Rosen. And you can find all of all of that stuff there. Tomorrow I'm gonna to be have have on one of uh one of my idols actually. I've I've been inspired by by this dude for a very long time, Daryl Davis. I am really if you haven't checked him out, he's a black jazz musician who over the course of these years has de-radicalized over 100 or so KKK members. So I'm really excited to talk to him and get get a little info on that. Forget the fact that he's, you know, performed with people like Chuck Berry, you know, Chubby Checker, all these insanely cool cats uh, of uh, the rock and roll community um, and blues community. So I'm, if you want to check that out, please be sure to check that out. Otherwise, we'll be on Monday with the leader of the big boy brass band here in Lancaster, uh, Connor Devlin. I'm really excited to talk to him as well. With all that said, I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode, and I will see you guys later. Bye! All right. <clears throat> there you go. Awesome. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate yeah, man. it. Um, let me grab a picture with you, and then... Sure. Hey, yeah, thank you so much. If you like any of that, I'll send I'll send all that stuff, the whole video thing to you, so you can clip it up for your website any which way you which way you want. Yeah, that'd be um, great. Yeah. Yeah. Keep me posted on any of the compositions. I'm like eager to hear what you got. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, yeah, tell me some more. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Uh, all right, I'll see you. Hey, thanks again. Yeah, no problem. See you around, Greg.